The following program does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Reality Radio 101, its advertisers and sponsors, or its listening audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, here on Reality Radio 101. In this radio show and podcast, we learn about fruit trees, permaculture, arboriculture, and so much more. So if you love trees, and especially fruit trees, or if you're interested in living a more sustainable life, then this is the place for you. I'm your host, Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, OrchardPeople.com. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. Right to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. Hi, everyone. If you're growing fruit trees, it is really important to consider biodiversity in your garden or in your orchard. That's why many fruit tree growers plant pollinator gardens near their trees. You see, if fruit trees are the only thing that blossoms in your garden, well then, the beneficial insects may not actually find your fruit trees in time to pollinate your trees. No pollination, no fruit, right? So when we design and install pollinator gardens, the goal is to offer the pollinators and other beneficial insects a reason to stay in your garden longer term, both for the fruit trees and for the flowers. So you ensure that there are plants blossoming throughout the growing season to offer them nutrition. You're making your garden a really nice place for them to spend their time. Now, herbs are also a great thing to have in your orchard or in your pollinator garden. Different types of herbs offer different benefits. So for instance, chive blossoms are really attractive to pollinators. But in addition, the oniony smell of chives is a real turnoff to some insect pests, so they may also avoid your nearby fruit trees. Fennel, dill, mint, and basil attract parasitic wasps. These wasps are actually fantastic to have in your garden, and that's because they feast on the fruit tree pests like aphids, sawflies, and thrips. So in general, it's really helpful to have herbs in your orchard. But what do you do with all those herbs other than using them as the occasional garnish? To find out, I I invited author and herbalist Brittany Wood Nickerson on the show today to talk about how those and other herbs can be used to help keep you and your family healthy just by integrating them into your daily cooking routine. Brittany teaches herbal medicine in Western Massachusetts, and she's the author of the beautiful book, Recipes from the Herbalist Kitchen. So before we dig into today's topic, I would love to hear from you. If you're listening during the live show, just email me, whether it's with your questions or comments, 
or even just to say hi, and you could win a copy of Brittany's book. Our email in the studio is instudio101 at gmail.com. That's instudio101 at gmail.com. So Brittany, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. I'm glad to have you. Tell me, how did you start your journey as a herbalist? Like, where did you first encounter herbs? Um, it's a good question. It's often the first question I get. I was lucky enough to be exposed to herbal medicine in my childhood. I had some really great elder mentors. Um, one was a family friend who lived in my small town community, and the other was my step-grandmother who was really environmentally ill. She had lived in New York City in a bottom floor apartment and the landlord was storing chemicals in the basement and from breeding those chemicals for, gosh, I think she lived there 20 years, she became really environmentally ill and um, she was told multiple times she was going to die and slowly nursed herself back to health with natural remedies. Um, And so she was always throughout my whole childhood talking about herbs and supplements had a slightly different approach than I do now. She used a lot of supplements, um, but still I just learned so much from her about the body and herbs, and it really um, began my interest in um, natural health. It's so So, interesting that you talk about that because, you know, you tell that story, and I imagine all these fancy herbs, maybe Chinese herbs, fancy remedies, but you've come to specialize in the kind of remedies that you can grow in your own backyard. Like what kind of things can really help help us with our health? Yeah, and I think that that's partly my personality. Um, I like things to be simple. And I really, um, I think what, what sparked, my, sparked my interest in herbs is just this deep, innate trust in the earth and what it provides. Um, and I love the simplicity of it. And so for me, I want to be as close as possible to the herb in its natural form. Um, so I love to be able to go out in the garden and taste the herb and smell the herb and make the medicine from the herb. And I, I think that makes it stronger. And that's really different than just going to the store and purchasing an herb. And I don't want to belittle that either because I know that that's what a lot of people have access to and that works better for other personality types. Um, but we have access to regardless. We have access to that direct medicine where we're making it ourselves. And then for those who are interested, we have access to purchasing those herbs. Absolutely. And it's interesting because if for even, you know, I'm involved in a community orchard and that's how my fruit tree experience began. And we have a big, beautiful pollinator garden and herbs were one of the top things that we wanted to integrate. So even yeah. for people who don't have a garden of their own, there are ways to get these yeah things into your community so you can have access to them. Brittany, you were talking about your philosophy a little bit. And in the book, you talk about how in our society on the whole, we rely on doctors to heal us when we're sick. Um, and how is your perspective different? Yeah, um, I think that doctors and health professionals are really valuable resources. Um, and we should seek their um, expertise and their counsel. Um, I think, unfortunately, there's an emphasis on um, health experts in our culture. And so when we, when we go to an expert or we seek the counsel of a doctor or some other kind of health professional, we often overlook our own agency in the process of our health and our health care. Um, and I think that that the, the um, 
reintroducing that agency is part of what helps people heal and get well. Um, and I know as a practitioner myself, and this is getting into my philosophy, when I work with people around herbs, I really want the empowerment to rest in their hands. I want them to feel that they're active um, participants in their own health care and that they're really empowered around it because I've just found that over and over again, that's what really sticks is that belief that they can have agency in taking care of themselves and that the little things they do every day matter in their health care. I actually think it's part of a larger um, uh, look at how we can foster preventative wellness um, because when we do things because we want to or because we know they help us, it's different than just doing things that we're told. And so I'm interested in kind of switching that perspective a little to being really the stewards of our own health and implementing and gathering information from other folks um, rather than really um, just relying on the information from the outside. I, I absolutely agree with you. In a previous episode, I talk about how I have uh, battled with Lyme disease. And in the end, I have to be my own doctor, right? So mm-hmm. you, you talk about, I have to be my own doctor in the sense of speaking to the experts and deciding what is right for my body. And you talk in your beautiful book about um, how we look at doctors like they're these heroes, that they know all yeah. the answers, right? And yeah. I've come to believe that the answers are definitely from within. Um, yeah. So that's quite beautiful. So historically, I mean, have herbs, like like the herbs we're going to be talking about, and in the show we'll talk about specific herbs and how they can help us but historically what have the role what's the role been for the kind of herbs that we can just grow in our gardens yeah i think um that historically people have used herbs um and in in i would say in the very beginning it's part of a tradition of what i would call kitchen medicine and home herbalism um, still practice today, I consider myself a home as well as professional herbalist. And so the integration of herbs would come into the home pharmacy as well as into daily cooking. Um, and the line, w- it was blurry. And so that's something I talk about a lot in recipes from the herbalist kitchen, is that there's a real benefit medicinally to blurring the lines between cooking with food, with herbs, excuse me, um, and using herbs medicinally. Um, and that, that kind of seeing the medicinal benefits of, of herbs both in cooking and in the home pharmacy, we start to integrate them more and receive more and more um, of the benefits. So now, of course, different traditions around the world have always used herbs differently, and we can look around the world at many different systems of how they have been used. Um, you've mentioned Chinese medicine and acupuncture, different traditions, but every tradition, traditional healing system in the world and the, according to the World Health Organization, the majority of people today in the, on the planet still use natural um, or herbal medicine and use it not only in the home pharmacy or in the professional setting, as is the case with acupuncture or Ayurveda, um, but also in their cooking. Um, and I think that one of the things I try to do in recipes from the Herbalist Kitchen is really reveal all the ways that we're cooking medicinally that we maybe aren't quite aware of but that we're, we're actually engaging in medicinal practices in the kitchen all the time. Well, that leads really well into this email that I have just now. The email's from Janice from California. So she writes, 
We make a lot of bone broth. My husband is an athlete and swears by it for performance. What herbs would you recommend and at what point would you add it or add those herbs to get the maximum benefits? We usually have our broth simmering for 24 hours. So I like that. That's an interesting question because it's about cooking, yeah. but it's also about, about uh, healing and athletic performance, strength. It's perfect. And I, I love bone broth. I talk about it in the book. Um, it's incredible for the digestion and every system of the body. Um, so I use bone broth. You can think of bone broth as being like a really, um, it's a tea, it's bone tea. And in some cultures, they actually call it that, bone tea. Um, and so with the addition of herbs, it's, we can actually think of it from two different perspectives. Herbs that do well when they're long, slow-cooked or simmered, the same way the bones thrive, will be a great addition. So the first things that come to mind for me are immune-strengthening mushrooms and adaptogenic herbs. And these are herbs, adaptogenic herbs, actually the immune-strengthening mushrooms fall into the category of adaptogenic. And what that means is that they help the body, the body to adapt to stressors over time. So you can't take them once and expect the body to adapt to stress. But if you take them over time, they help the body adapt to stress. And mm-hmm. these are stresses that range from everything from like daily stress, you know, getting out the door for work in the morning, to long-term stress like, you know, athletic performance. Um, and interestingly, the research that that was originally done on adaptogens was done in the former Soviet Union during the Cold War. And the research was based on the goal of trying to find herbs that would help to improve the performance of elite personnel, including military, athletes, chess players, etc. So um, what kind of so herbs? So the adaptogens are great. Yeah, so what, what kind of adaptogens would work in a broth and when would you put them in? Yeah, so I would put the adaptogens in at the very beginning. They don't need any, you know, if you were to just purchase them dried, they wouldn't need any extra preparation. You just put them in with the bones at the very beginning. Um, I really like astragalus. That's a really wonderful um, med- um, herbal herb from the Chinese tradition. Um, I use astragalus that has been processed, which means that it has been steamed and pressed. And the astragalus root, it's the root, and it looks like a, it's a slice. It looks like a tongue depressor, almost, like from the doctor's office. And you can put in, you know, three or four of those. Um, and then I really like to use the medicinal mushrooms. Um, those would be uh, things like reishi mushroom, maitake mushroom, shiitake mushroom. Those are some of my personal favorites, but you can also use other edible and medicinal mushrooms. Um, and then I also really like to put in what I would consider to be blood builders. So things that really help to increase nutrition um, and build the blood. So um, I love hawthorn berries, which are a Western herb from the hawth- uh, um, dried berry from the hawthorn tree. I'm sure you're familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's um, goji berries, also from the Eastern tradition. And I, sometimes I put nettle leaf in. Um, another, it's actually a weed um, from the Western tradition, but um, it's a really wonderful, incredible, nutrient-dense plant. And all of those actually thrive in that long, slow simmering process that bone broth requires. Well, so out of those, I'm looking and thinking, well, nettle leaf, you stinging nettles, I think a lot of us have. So we can just take, uh, you know, one of those horrible (laughs) stinging nettles and throw it in your broth, your bone broth. You can just make sure you wear gloves or else you'll get stung. (laughs) Um, Amazing. Yeah. 
So you can actually, for tea, I recommend that the herb be dried. But if you're going to simmer it for a long time, you can use fresh or dried. And the same thing with hawthorn berries. Is there any yeah. caution if you want to harvest them in the wild that you should know for sure they're hawthorn berries? Or you're not? I think you should always know for sure they're hawthorn berries. Um, and um, you'd want to do, you know, I, I think always when you're harvesting, um, you want to make sure you have a positive identification. And I think that goes for whether you're in the wild setting or in someone's garden. Um, I think it's really important to um, just make sure, always make sure you have a positive identification. Um, I don't personally know a lot of Hawthorne lookalikes here where I live, um, but I don't want to in any way say that that means they don't exist because there's lots of trees with red berries. Um, But the Hawthorne, and there's several different varieties of Hawthorne trees, but they do, um, in my experience, have sort of larger thorns um, and beautiful small green um, leaves with lots of lobes. Um, but again, there's, I see so many different varieties. So I would just recommend that folks do, do their research and make sure they have positive identification on it, that. Is it possible, Brittany, to actually OD? Like, you know, we're using these <laughs> things as, as a drug in a way. Um, can you overdo yeah. it and hurt yourself with too many of these herbs, whether it's in your soup or in your salad or wherever? Yeah. Um, I think it's an important question to address because it feels um, some of this territory feels unknown to us, and so we want to make sure that we're safe when we do it. But the the good news is that a lot of the you know, including the herbs I talked about in the broth, but especially the culinary herbs that I talk about in the book, they're included in food recipes for a reason um, because for the most part they're considered to be really safe. Um, that said, there's always the opportunity for idiosyncrasies. Um, and I do have a sidebar in the book where I kind of talk about um, herb safety. And I think that that remembering that each individual body and constitution is unique and that there's always the possibility for adverse reactions, even in an herb that's considered 100% safe. Um, so if, if, if anyone ever feels that um, an herb makes them uncomfortable, they should follow that instinct. That and just sense. a great example I can give from my own life is um, ginger root, considered a very safe herb. Um, but for me, it actually aggravates some constitutional patterns that I have, can make me feel lightheaded, and can aggravate headaches. So that would be a great example of an idiosyncratic reaction um, where, you know, for many people it's fine, it's certainly not going to hurt me, but it might make me uncomfortable. Mm, that is such a good lesson. We've got an interesting question here from Mike. I'm not sure where Mike is from, but Mike writes, Hi, Susan. Absolutely love your show. Thank you. And thank you, Mike. Um, a question for your guest. Do you think that a lot of diseases have cures with natural herbs, but Big Pharma doesn't want us to know? Thank you for your answer. What a good question. What do you think? It is such a good question. Um, I guess I can't speak for Big Pharma, um, but I can say that they're that yes, there's a huge plethora of natural and alternative and herbal remedies that can offer a lot of relief um, for different health concerns. Um, and there's a lot of politics in medicine. You know, I'm, I'm here in the United States where there's just so much politics around health care and drugs and there's so much money in lobbying. And it's really, really sad. Um, so while I can't speak to what's going on in, in the motivation of those companies, I can say 
that that I feel that the money that's involved in the healthcare system and the drug industry is actually counter to the goal of helping people get well. Um, that it feels often that the motivation to for or the monetary motivation is higher than thinking about individual quality of life. Um, the other thing that I want to say in relationship to that question is that um, the way that a lot of natural remedies and natural traditional health systems work is that we actually support people and not diseases. Um, and that model of care is so different than the traditional um, allopathic model. And I, it's funny to call it traditional. I should say the current allopathic model because these other systems are often more traditional um, that, that, that work with diseases rather than people. And so because of that shift, it's such a big paradigm shift, I think that sometimes it is hard to say this herb works for this disease as a cure for this disease. And I think it's one of the things that undermines the efficacy and the, and the, and the um, effectiveness of herbal and alternative medicine is that the worldview through which they're used is so different. So all of a sudden you take the herb and you put it into the allopathic model and it doesn't work as a quote-unquote cure, um, but that's because as it would be applied by a traditional herbalist or a traditional acupuncturist, traditional practitioner of Ayurveda, et cetera, would be so different just in terms of how it looked at the whole person. Well, um, I think so does that make sense? It does. And what I like about it, it's also not about waiting until you get sick, right? Like, yeah. this conversation is not for people who are already sick. This is a conversation. I mean, yeah. it can be as well. But it's like, how do you bring balance to your own body? So for instance, yeah. um, you know, if if you're the kind of person that has a lot of red in your eyes, always your eyes are always red and bloodshot but there's no health problems but that may be an indication about you know your body's too hot or there's too much stress or yeah. whatever so it's all a big balancing act and these herbs can help us gently balance before we get sick so we don't have to get yeah. sick does that make kind of sense is that i think that's wonderful yeah so here's, i totally agree so here's an interesting question from julie ann so julie ann lives near wyerton ontario she says, I'm starting an orchard and integrating various herbs and flowers throughout. I'm so pleased that she's integrating them. I'm trying to focus on using native perennials as much as possible. The site is Sandy Loam, South Facing, and Zone 5. Considering this, do you know of a handful of native perennials that can be used for herbs? So I don't know what zone you're in, Brittany. Uh, do you know what zone yeah. you're in? I'm in five. Oh, great. So you're also in five. Yeah. So are any of the herbs that you talk about in your book or that you use, are any of them, uh, you know, native to yeah. zone five? And, and yeah. So most of the herbs that I talk to, talk about in the book, I talk to them too, <laughs> but that I talk about in the book um, are from the Mediterranean tradition. So most of them are coming from Europe. Um, and most of them are grown as garden plants rather than wild herbs. Um, so I would, you know, say that in terms of, and then for folks that don't know, the book mostly focuses on culinary herbs. So things like um, lavender, rosemary, sage. Um, so it does talk about mint, and I think that mint is a potential, um, and certainly there's many native varieties of mint, Um that would be one to consider. The herbs that came to mind for me right away as I was thinking about this particular question, um, one is mullein. 
Um, and there are different varieties of mullein, but we do have um, one that's certainly naturalized here in this region. Mullein is a biannual plant, so in the first year it's a rosette of leaves on the ground, and the second year it sends up its um, flower stalk, and it has um, many beautiful yellow flowers, um, that can, and the flower and leaves can be used medicinally, and they attract um, really nice pollinators. Um, oh, that sounds like a nice and, potential one. Yep. Yeah, it is. It's really wonderful. Um, and it will, you know, it's funny. My uh, husband and I, we just cut back all of our mullein because we love it, but it, it produces like billions of seeds. <laughs> um, so to avoid like spending our whole spring weeding mullein, we, we let it flower and then we let it just start to go to seed and then we cut it back. Um, so that's a, a trick if you don't want it to totally take over. Hmm. That's um, a good suggestion. Yeah. Um, and then the other herb I thought of is echinacea. Um, and echinacea is more native to open grasslands of the um, central United States, but grows great in this climate. Um, and there is a wonderful, beautiful um, wildflower and if you had some open grassland in and around your orchard, that would do really well hmm. um, as well. We grow echinacea. Um, we call it coneflower or echinacea. Yeah. yeah. And it's exactly. beautiful in a pollinator garden. It looks great as well. Um, yeah. But how is it really usable, the echinacea? What would you do with it if yeah. you wanted to use it? So you can use the flowers or the roots. Um, and the flowers you would use when they're in full bloom. Um, and the roots you would use in the fall after the plant has gone dormant. Um, after, well, or it doesn't have to be fully dormant, but it would be, it would be mostly dormant. It would be after the first frost. That's always the best time to harvest roots. Um, and um, echinacea root and flower is a wonderful lymphatic. It helps move the lymph fluid, and it helps to stimulate the immune system. So it's really great um, for uh, fever, colds and flus, um, any kind of virus or bacterial infection oh that's great uh, you know in what we're gonna we're coming up to a little commercial uh, break but after that we can talk a little bit more about cold and flu we got a question about that and okay we'll talk about some of the culinary herbs and how what kind of recipes you can use to actually take these herbs from your garden and make them into something that healing and wonderful and beautiful does that sound good can you hang on the line for a couple of minutes that sounds great that's wonderful. Thank you, Brittany. So you folks are listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101, where we talk about fruit trees and food forests, permaculture, and arboriculture. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com, and we'll be back after this short break. If you want your fruit trees to live a long and healthy and productive life, it's essential that you water them properly when they're young. You need to water slowly and deeply so the moisture seeps into your young tree's expanding root system. That sounds easy enough, but you'd be surprised at how often the water you provide for your trees just rolls away, leaving its young roots high and dry. That's why we at TreePans.com have worked with orchards to develop a product that ensures all the water gets to your tree's root system. 
Our expandable tree pans funnel rain or irrigation water to the drip line of your young trees. Additionally, tree pans eliminate weed growth under the tree canopy, as well as protect your trees from mowers, tractors, and weed whips. Tree pans are used in orchards, city parks, and in residential yards. And once your young tree is established, you can move your tree pans to another young tree. Learn more about tree pans at treepans.com. Looking for a quick, easy to apply, and all natural fertilizer to use in your vegetable and flower gardens or for your fruit trees? Why not work with Mother Nature? Layer Hand Manure is a terrific fertilizer, and this is what Actisol does by transforming the manure from their egg farms into an efficient fertilizer. The manure is dried using a technology that harnesses the heat given off by the hands. No other heat source is needed. Actisol is easy to use, safe for the environment, children and pets. You can purchase Actisol products at your local garden center or order in bulk. For more information, visit www.acti-sol.ca. Actisol, the mother hen fertilizer. In healthy soil, there's so much activity going on. Microorganisms thrive, and good bacteria feed on sugars that seep out of plant and tree roots. In return, these bacteria transform nutrients in the soil into fertility that our plants can enjoy. But what if you don't have perfect soil? Those friendly bacteria may not be active, and your plants and trees may not thrive. There is a solution, though. Earth Alive Soil Activator is an organic biofertilizer that contains three carefully selected bacterial strains that will make nutrients in the soil available to your plants. And your plant or tree will thank you with better growth and a better harvest. Earth Alive Soil Activator has been shown to boost yields in crops including avocados, grapes, strawberries, and even guavas. Go to EarthAliveCT.com to learn more about it and let our friendly bacteria bring your growing spaces back to life. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To get on board, send us an email right now. Our email address is instudio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. I'm Susan Poisner, and this is the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. In this live radio show and podcast, we talk about the nicer things in life, like fruit trees, food forests, permaculture, and arboriculture. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today on the show, we are talking about herbs. Many of us integrate herbs into our growing spaces for lots of reasons. To increase biodiversity in our gardens, to attract pollinators or beneficial insects, and to use in the kitchen. Well, today my guest is herbalist Brittany Wood Nickerson, the author of the beautiful book, Recipes from the Herbalist's Kitchen. And we'll talk about how, and we're talking about how to integrate herbs 
into your diet. It doesn't just make your food taste better. It can also improve your health. Now, if you, the listener, want to win a copy of Brittany's book, you can just send us an email with a question or a comment or just to say hi. Send the email to instudio101 at gmail.com right now. That's instudio101 at gmail.com. Tell us about the herbs you have growing in your garden and how you use them, or just send us a question, and you'll be eligible to win a copy of Brittany's book. And just remember to give us your first name and where you are writing from. So Brittany, before the commercial break, we were talking a little bit about herbs that help ward off the common cold. We got an email from Brian. So Brian asks, are there any herbs that you feel will help ward off the common cold? Thank you. And we were talking about echinacea. Now, the only association that I have is if you go to the health food shop, you can get echinacea for a cold, can't you? You can. So so could you, using your echinacea from the garden, help yourself Mm -hmm. with, you know, or are there, is there anything else that's more relevant? Yeah, no, I mean, I think echinacea is wonderful. I I do think that echinacea um, has a tendency to be a little overused um, for its immune stimulating qualities. Traditionally, it's used as a mild immune stimulant, but also as a blood blood purifier because it moves the lymph um, and, excuse me, helps to cool and detoxify the blood. Um, So it's also used for poisoning, infections, um, et cetera. Um, So I I think that... um, a lot of herbalists feel that perhaps echinacea is one that has come into common use and is maybe sometimes overused. Um, but that doesn't mean it doesn't work and that it's not effective. Um, the part that we mostly use medicinally is the root, although as I mentioned before the break, we also use the flower. Um, another uh, herb that I think is definitely worth mentioning here, especially for home gardeners who love trees that also produce food, <laughs> um, is the elder tree. Um, and so the black elder, um, Sambucas nigra, is, um, it, it has the elder flower, and then that turns into the beautiful elderberry. Um, and both the elder flower and the elderberry can be used edibly and medicinally. The elder flower, in terms of edibility, is used more like idiosyncratically. Like I use it, I snip the flowers into muffins or pancakes or things like that. Um, and I also make. Um, you know, drinks like elderflower champagne and that kind of stuff. Um, but then the berries um, in food are used often pies, jams, like, you know, muffins. We put them in smoothies, you name it. Um, so they have a lot of uses. But in terms of their medicinal qualities, both are fantastic for the common cold. And they're, they're remedies that I think really belong in any home herbal pharmacy for folks that are wanting to use natural remedies. Hmm. I use the flowers more for conditions of the upper respiratory system. So upper respiratory um, sinuses, nasal passageways, um, throat, um, nose. So it would be congestion um, due to a cold, um, symptoms of allergies, including post-nasal drip. Um, It has a real ability to thin mucus and move mucus um, and soothe mucosal membranes. So it's great for that. It's also an antiviral. Um, So if folks have um, you know, uh, the common cold virus, then elderflower is really great. And when you drink the tea hot, um, it actually is a diaphoretic, which means that it makes the body sweat. So it pushes heat from the core of the body out to the peripheral, causes sweating, and then that actually cools. Um, so it's a great remedy for fever, 
and it's an incredibly kid-friendly herb. So I have an 18-month-old daughter, and I use um, elderflower a lot. Um, and I use it from things ranging from, you know, a little bit of extra time in the sun, and she has a little heat rash on the back of her neck, which she gets sometimes, to, you know, teething symptoms, to, you know, waking up in the morning with a stuffy nose. So the elderflower can be made into a tea, is that it? How, do you, how would you yeah, use that? Yeah, that's what I most recommend. You can do alcohol-based tincture extract um, as well, but I highly recommend the tea. So what I do is I dry the flowers, and then I use them um, as needed throughout the year as a tea. Um, if you researched elderflower, you'll see lots of cautions not to use the stems. Um, the stems can cause irritation to the stomach and vomiting. Um, I, in all my years as an herbalist, I've never seen her that happen to anybody. Um, and so I get many questions every year. How careful do I have to be with the elder, you know, taking off the stems? And I tell people, be careful, but you don't need to literally pick off every single tiny stem. Because the flowers grow in an umbel. They're quite small. Um, and so to remove every stem would be really labor-intensive. Um, so what I do is I just kind of pull the florets from the um, stems, and I've never had any problems with that. Hmm. Um, yeah, so um, that said, I do want to let people know that um, while elderberry is the one that is the more common of, of the elders in my region, there is a red elderberry, um, and you don't want to eat the berries or flowers of the red elder. Um, and so on my blog, um, time, my blog is timeherbal.com slash blog, and time is like the herb, T-H-Y-M-E. I have an extensive post on how to identify um, black elder um, and differentiate it from red elder. Oh, that's um, so useful. So that would definitely be worth it for folks who are interested in this. That's a great um, thing to check out. Yeah, I yeah. got it. And then, mm -hmm. sorry, go ahead. Well, I just want to say real quickly, the berries um, are also amazing antiviral, great for cold and flu. I use those for lower respiratory more often when things settle in the lungs. Um, or, you know, if someone's prone to lung issues, I'll use that. So I can, I can just imagine in your kitchen or somewhere in your pantry, you've got these jars of dried, all sorts of dried herbs that you collect throughout the growing season. Is that right? Is that what it looks like there? Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. And um, then you I use have, them. Yeah. Yeah, I have a, a an overgrown spice shelf, um, herb shelf in my house, which is actually an old CD case. And it's the perfect size for a pint-sized two-cup jar. So that's where I keep all of them in my house. And then I have a studio building where I do my work, where I see clients and teach classes. And I have um, large gallon size or a half-gallon size jars, um, similar to the bulk section in your health food store, where I keep the larger amounts of the herbs that I'm using on a regular basis. Wow, that sounds amazing. Um, we have a question from Harry. Again, I don't know where Harry is from. Guys, if you're sending emails, do tell me where you're from. I'm always very curious. Um, are there, this is a good question. Are there any herbs that are natural antibiotics? <laughs> I love that question because like yeah. antibiotics are always in the news and they're supposed to protect us from all sorts of stuff, but they're overused. But can, can her, a herb be an antibiotic? Yeah, it's such an amazing question. And it's such an amazing answer. Um, I, I want to direct folks to, towards a resource if they're interested in this topic. Stephen Buner, who's an amazing American herbalist, has written two books, always written many books, but he has um, Herbal Antibiotics and Herbal Antivirals. And they're amazing books. And 
one of the things that he, he profiles herbs that can be used, the answer to the question is yes, there are herbal antibiotics and herbal antivirals. But what's amazing about them is that because these plants are living organisms, they are adapting alongside their environment and literally alongside these bacteria. Um, so whereas an antibiotic is a stagnant thing created in a lab where a bacteria can actually develop to overcome that antibiotic, and we have a lot of talk about this with antibiotic-resistant um, bacteria that are now causing a lot of um, issues in folks, particularly in hospitals. Um, but be, but that the ability of the bacteria to do that is because the antibiotic is stagnant. Um, so it's not alive and mutating and changing, whereas the bacteria is. And so what Stephen Buhner talks about in this book and what the research shows is that um, herbs, because they're living beings, are actually adapting alongside these bacteria and that you want to use your herbal antibiotics fresh, you know, each year, every couple of years, because the, the um, constituents in the plant are actually changing and adapting alongside um, these bacteria. So, I mean, it's just mind-blowing in terms of the intelligence of plants. Um, that's amazing how the system works that is amazing yeah it's amazing that that nature is evolving and and can help us that is incredible yeah Um, Yeah. it it totally makes sense I mean bacteria are alive and the plants are alive as well Um, Susan before we move on I during the break I thought of two things that I would like to share do you mind absolutely yeah Um, So the first one was in terms of the safety question that was asked earlier, I did forget to mention that it's always important, not necessarily with cooking with culinary herbs, but with any other herbs, it's always important to um, double check the herbs, um, any indications the herb might have with a medication. So if folks are taking pharmaceutical medications and they're interested in using herbs medicinally, it, it is important to reference those, those particular herbs against medications because we don't want to take medications that either speed up the metabolism of drugs. I'm sorry. We don't want to take herbs that speed up the metabolism of medications. And we also don't want to take herbs that do the same thing or the opposite thing as the medication we're taking because um, that's a direct interference. Um, so if folks are on um, particularly more than one pharmaceutical medication, I recommend they consult with a health professional before starting to take large amounts of herbs. Now, that's not cooking with herbs. That would just be like, you know, medicinal or, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, doses of herbs. Well, that's yeah. good advice. That's yeah. very good um, advice. And the other thing I wanted to mention in relationship to the pollinator question in the garden was the question was specific to native plants, so I wanted to honor that. But I did want to mention that the plant that attracts a huge amount of pollinators in my garden is lavender. Um, and that is a featured herb in the book. Um, so if, if the person who asked that question is interested in branching, um, there is lav- varieties of English lavender, the lavendula, um, that will grow in zone five and perennial in zone five. So it's another great one for the bees. Yes, and, and also, and I so, I love her, um, she really wanted to integrate native plants into her, yeah. her garden. I think that's awesome. Um, maybe I'm just not a purist, but <laughs> in our garden, yeah. we, we, I guess the pollinators come first, the beneficials come first, because we want those beneficial insects and the pollinators to work with our fruit trees. So we're flexible. We try to integrate yeah. um, native plants, but we also have the beautiful lavender, thyme, the sage, because we also want it yeah. to be useful for the community so they can come and yeah. harvest and enjoy. 
So I think those are both really good points. Um, yeah, and there's no reason why they can't exist side by side either. Exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, we have another question. I'm loving all the questions today. Such interesting questions. Um, we've got one from Claudette, and Claudette says, <laughs> I resonate with this, inflammation, 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 deadly, <laughs> anything to help with it. So, yeah, yeah. is there are there anti-inflammatory herbs? Yeah, there are. Um, there's anti-inflammatory herbs, and um, the you know the one that has received the most attention um, recently, or I should say, in the last five or ten years, is turmeric. Um, and turmeric is a member of the curcumin family, um, and it's native to tropical warm regions, um, and it's used a lot in uh, traditional medicine and, and Ayurveda in particular. And um, in, in India, as both a food and as a medicine. In fact, I read this awesome article the other day about that the average person in India is consuming, like, you know, a certain number of grams of turmeric every day that is considered such a high medicinal dose, and their rates of inflammation are so much lower than ours. Wow. Um, so that's, like, a really awesome example. And, you know, even just including it into your diet in large amounts um, would, would do the trick. You could also, um, of course, take capsules or other supplements, um, of which there's many on the market, because it's become very popular. And the interesting thing about turmeric is that it works on different levels of inflammation. So I do think it's important to think about how and why inflammation happens in the body. Um, inflammation can be a response to an acute injury, or it can be something that becomes long and um, long-term and chronic, um, and kind of sets foot and is throughout the body. Um, and um, there's, it's important, of course, to think about what the factors might be. Um, sometimes there's an, an, aller, an aggravant that's consistent, so oftentimes it's something that's coming in through the diet or the environment, um, and that input into the body, whether it be a food or the breathing of a mold or what have you, a pollen even, um, is um, aggravating the immune system and therefore causing an overimmune response and therefore inflammation. Um, and then sometimes, of course, it could be from, um, you know, a, a condition such as arthritis or some other kind of muscular skeletal thing. And then we can also have inflammation that's caused by stress. Um, and I actually just had a student in my third year class who did a project on um, the kind of anti-inflammatory lifestyle. And one of the things she talked about um, was the, in, the impact of stress on chronic inflammation and how stress can cause chronic inflammation. And she referenced a really interesting book called The Body Keeps the Score. Um, so I think there's a lot, and there's a lot of other resources out there in relationship to that topic. But I always think about with my clients when they have inflammation, um, you know, where do I start? What's the biggest aggravant? Might there be something in the diet? Um, if there's inflammation in the digestive system, there'll be inflammation in the rest of the body. So do I need to soothe the gut and heal the mucosal lining of the gut? Is there stress? Should we use herbs for stress? Um, those kinds of questions I think are really important. But turmeric, interestingly, works on multiple pathways of inflammation. So it actually reduces inflammation at the cellular level. And it also supports liver function. And, and the liver is involved in the inflammatory pathway and cycles, et cetera, because the liver filters so many toxins from the body. Um, so, and when when it's backed up or not able or overworked or not able to do its job, that puts extra stress on the system and can increase inflammatory responses. 
So because turmeric is such an amazing liver herb, it also supports reducing inflammation systemically by supporting liver function. So I love that about, you know, it's just a great example of some of the themes that have been coming up today anyways, which is that, you know, it's like the herbs work on multiple levels. They work holistically and they work directly. So turmeric is a direct anti-inflammatory and it's working holistically to help the body reduce the need for inflammation. Amazing. Um, We're going to have another commercial break, but one last question before the commercial And there's more room for questions, folks, if you want to send them in. Mason writes, hello, new listener here from Toronto. Does your guest have a website? Thanks. So could you tell us again what your website is? Yeah, thank you for that question. I appreciate it. Um, My website is, uh, my business is Thyme Herbal, and Thyme is like the culinary herb, T-H-Y-M-E. And my website is timeherbal.com, T-H-Y-M-E-H-E-R-B-A-L.com. And you can link there to the shop on my website, which has um, recipes from the Herbalist Kitchen, although you might be the lucky winner of the book giveaway. Um, And I have my other books and educational posters on there as well. You can link to the blog um, and my philosophy and more about me and I have so many recipes on my blog, too, for those who are interested, including a turmeric recipe. Wonderful. Yes, so we're going to have a few uh, words from our sponsors, and then we'll have maybe time for another question or two, and then we will find out who wins your book. So, okay, so hold on the line then, Brittany. You're listening. Yeah, thank you. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner from OrchardPeople.com. I'm also the author of the fruit tree care book, Growing Urban Orchards, and we will be back right after this short break. If you're an arborist, master gardener, or landscaper who's keen to learn fruit tree care skills, check out OrchardPeople.com's Certificate in Beginner Fruit Tree Care. Not only does our intensive online training give you the skills you need, but we'll also give you a certificate that you can use to claim continuing education credits from the International Society of Arboriculture and from other professional bodies. Learn more about continuing education at OrchardPeople.com by visiting OrchardPeople.com slash workshops. Hi, I'm Mark Cullen with some news about a wonderful lineup of garden supplies and garden tools that will absolutely knock your gardening socks off. They're called Mark's Choice, and they're exclusive to home hardware 1,100 stores coast to coast to coast. Mark's Choice features great quality products that will not only last years, but in some cases will last a lifetime. Look for my various garden gloves, stainless steel garden tools, stainless steel digging tools, my new garden backhoe, and many, many others. As a matter of fact, there's over 160 different products in the Mark's Choice lineup. I'd love you to try them all. But start by sampling one that appeals to you. Drop by your local home hardware. Have a look at the Mark's Choice lineup of tools and garden supplies, including my line of garden soils, and decide for yourself. Great quality. 
lasting quality, and a great gardening experience. That's what I strive for with Mark's Choice. Look for it at Home Hardware. If you're thinking of planting fruit trees and you're looking for a wide selection of cultivars, consider Wiffle Tree Nursery. Our 62-page full-color catalog includes over 300 varieties of fruit and nut trees, berries, grapes, and other edible perennial plants. Not only that, in our catalog, we help you through the selection process with tips and advice about all aspects of growing fruit trees. You can learn about adding nitrogen-fixing plants, rootstock choices, and even about planting a windbreak if you have a windy site. We're a one-stop shop as we sell fruit tree care books, pruning tools, organic sprays, and natural fertilizers. We're located in Alora, Ontario, but we can ship all over Canada. Call us at 519-669-1349 to order your catalog. That's 519-669-1349. Whiffle Tree Nursery. Call us today. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. And now, right back to Susan. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. And I'm Susan Poisner. So in this show today, we talk about fruit trees, food forest, permaculture, and arboriculture, but today our special topic is about herbs and the type of herbs both that we can grow in our garden and we're talking about all sorts of herbs that we can eat and that can heal us. My guest on the show today today is Brittany Wood Nickerson, the author of the beautiful book Recipes from the Herbalist Kitchen. I got to say I really enjoyed this book and I feel like it's one of those books that you want to keep on the shelf and refer to from time to time. So, Brittany, we have time for maybe one or two more questions. I feel like you and I, we could chat for like hours and there's so many topics and I will, you know, about the recipes in your books and, but we have an urgent email here from John. I don't know. Oh, yes. John is from Toronto. This is very urgent. And he says, weight loss herb, help. So we have to answer John. (laughs) Yeah. It's such a good question. Gosh, um. You know, again, like we said at the very beginning of the show, um, the culture wants herbs for conditions, and usually herbs, the paradigm we use herbs through is more for people. So I've never worked with people the same way twice on that. Um, I will say that a lot of times um, weight issues are related to stress, even if there's not current stress, stress in the past, um, and the stress pattern gets set up and the body holds on to the weight. and it can be particularly from high cortisol levels. Um, and that oftentimes when folks gain weight around the middle, that's particularly to high cortisol levels. Um, and then a lot of it can also be related to um, irregular eating patterns and blood sugar imbalances. So I definitely recommend, you know, getting on an eating schedule of three square meals a day and um, uh doing making sure that if you have snacks there's kids are complete snacks so there's fat and protein at every snack um and meal of course um so it's not just you know carbohydrates or fruit or those kinds of things i think that's really important um there's also um 
uh, herbal bitters are um, becoming more and more popular. You can often find them now at your natural health food store. And they're, they're alcohol-based extracts, which we colloquially call tinctures, um, and they're of, of bitter herbs. Um, and they, they're actually kind of a, 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 like similar to cocktail bitters, although cocktail, cocktail bitters often have a sweetener to them as well. Um, and the bitter taste stimulates the whole digestive process and also flushes and cleanses the liver. Um, so so it, the having bitters, you take them up 15 to 20 minutes before a meal, um, you know, anywhere from 10 to 30 drops in a sip of warm water helps to stimulate the digestive system and helps to balance out food cravings, um, which can sometimes be related to people's weight um, relationship as well. Um, so that's a, a potential tool. The other thing I'll mention is that... Um, there's an organization called um, Life Spa, and it's um, the herbalist who's behind that is John Duillard, and he's a doctor also trained in Ayurveda, and he has some supplements and herbs that he um, sells for weight loss and reducing sugar cravings and these kinds of things. Um, so I would um, point folks to that resource as well. In terms of just like one cure-all herb, I don't know it. So I'm sorry that I don't know the answer to that question. Well, I want to bring it full circle because um, in your book, you talk about lavender and we can't, we've got to wrap up kind of quickly, but you talk about lavender for anti-anxiety and you give a beautiful recipe of making sort of a, um, a lavender product that you can eat and it's a little sweet and it'll calm you down. It seems like so many problems these days revolve around stress and yeah. slowing down our lifestyle. And you've got these digestive recipes that have thyme in it and ways of making teas. So I can highly suggest that people have a look at your book, whether it's yeah. in the library or elsewhere, because there's just, it's such a rich um, resource. Um, and there is so much with these ordinary herbs that we can do. And that's yeah. what I think impressed me about the book. It's very empowering. I really enjoyed it in that way. Yeah, and I think, you know, the question with any of this stuff is what do we need to heal and what do how do we want to have, have our lives look and feel like? And I think one of the projects of recipes from the Herbalist Kitchen is that just cooking with herbs, regardless of whether you grow them or buy them, whether they're dried or fresh, and, you know, just getting into the kitchen and doing that is a really healing experience and there's a lot that it offers. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Since talking to you for the first time, I'm really trying to, you know, I've got a garden filled with herbs and I often just let them be there and I don't use them. And I'm really trying to just throw them in more dishes and just, uh, you know, know that they will really enhance not just the flavor of the dish, but also uh, my, my life, which is great. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> good for you. Okay, Brittany, I am now, I wish you were here to pick the name of the winner of your yes. book. <laughs> but I've just opened it up. And Harry, Harry, you are the winner of this beautiful hardcover book. So Gary, in the isn't that wonderful? Gary in the studio is going to send you an email, Harry, and you need to send us your address. We'll send it off to the publishers to give you a beautiful copy yeah. of the book. 
So, and thank you everyone for your questions. Such good questions. I'm telling you, this has been a wonderful. I had to do hardly any work in this show. My goodness, <laughs> <laughs> the listeners asked all the questions today. So, thank you, Brittany, so much for coming on the show today and sharing your wisdom and your knowledge. Uh, again, I feel like we could have talked on and on, but I so appreciate the time that you spent with us. So thank you. Well, thank you. you so much for having me. And thank you, everyone, for all your questions. Okay, take care. We'll talk again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for the Urban Forestry Radio Show today. I'm Susan Poisner from OrchardPeople.com. And this show went so quickly, I can't believe it. If you want to learn more about fruit trees and pollinator gardens and all the sorts of things that we want to plant around the fruit trees, check out my website, OrchardPeople.com. I have a blog and I talk about, um, I have lots of blogs about different topics relating to not only fruit trees, but the stuff that you plant around and with them. I also have an online training course where I really stress, you know, polyculture, uh, orchards and gardens where you have lots of different things integrated into your growing space, not just fruit trees. So hopefully you'll check that out. And if you missed part of this show or if you want to listen to previous episodes, Again, go to orchardpeople.com slash podcast and you'll see the other amazing guests I've had on the show in the past. And I so appreciate everybody who comes and spends time with all of us. So that's it for today. We'll be back again next month with a really another really interesting interview. Prepare your questions. And thank you so much for tuning in. I love having you guys as listeners. See you next time. to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. To learn more about the show and to download the podcast where I cover lots more great topics, you can visit orchardpeople.com slash podcast. The show is broadcast live on the last Tuesday of every month. And each time I have great new guests talking to me about fruit trees, food forests, and arboriculture. If you're interested in learning more about growing your own fruit trees or just about living a more sustainable life, go to orchardpeople.com and sign up for my information-packed monthly newsletter. If you like this show, please do like our Orchard People Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter at at Urban Fruit Trees. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been wonderful to have you as a listener, and I hope to see you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101.